0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton explores how the biblical narrative is the story that helps make sense of our stories. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. The
1: scripture reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to verse 7. Please turn to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, or follow along in the Sermon Notes handout. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: All right, we are well into our series now in Genesis 1 to 3. In this series, where we say every week, uh, we've all been born into this gigantic story of the universe, and we're trying to figure out what story makes the best sense of the existence of the universe, of what it means to be human beings, of what it means to be a human within this universe. And we're comparing and contrasting various stories with the Judeo Christian story in Genesis 1 to 3. so, today, what I want to talk about is what story makes the best sense of the fact that evil exists in our world. On the one hand, human life in, in this world is pretty incredible. We did a whole message on beauty. On the other hand, life in this world and human beings can be pretty dark and, let's just say it, pretty evil. There's something desperately wrong with the world. And I don't just mean, yes, of course, we mean things like right now what's going on in Ukraine, but let's just personalize a little bit more. If we get really honest and we look within ourselves, there's something wrong with me. It's not just all out there. There's something wrong inside of me. Why do I have problems in relationships? Why do I lose my patience? Why do I struggle along and make my own life a mess and have problems with other people? So it's out there, but it's also inside. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2 over the past few months. Today we finally get to Genesis chapter 3. Only the first verse, though. And then we're going to unpack the next few verses in the weeks to come. Here, as we turn the corner now into Genesis 3, this is really a major turning point in the Bible's story because here we discover the Bible's answer to what's wrong with the world. So far, the Bible's story, as we've seen, is that God's original good creation was good? It was good. There was no evil in it. God did not create evil in his world. Uh, he did not, human beings are not dying. There's not suffering and violence and these types of things. Genesis 1 and 2, that was the story so far. It's a place where Adam and Eve live in harmony with each other, harmony with the world that God created them, and, of course, harmony with their creator. But in Genesis chapter 3, everything changes. In Genesis chapter 3, evil enters the world, and the world really, in many ways, falls apart. Here's how we can think of it Think of Genesis 1 and 2 like the ocean, the beautiful ocean, pristine down in the Caribbean somewhere. But think of evil, in the biblical sense, like pollution. Pollution occurs when a contaminant is introduced into a natural environment and it causes tremendously terrible effects. you remember, uh, those of you old enough to remember, not too far away, but a little bit in the distant past, in 2010 with the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, do you remember that? Catastrophic. 4.9 million barrels of oil all through the Gulf of Mexico. An environmental disaster. The effect on marine life was absolutely devastating. To pollute something is to defile it, like oil defiled the ocean that was there. Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of like the ocean. Here's the good part of it all. And chapter 3 shows us how something came in to God's original good creation and, like pollution, defiled it. Evil, like pollution, defiled Adam and Eve. And it brought devastating effects into God's good world. So today, what I want to do, and really over the next three weeks, maybe four, I think next four weeks, we're in Genesis chapter 3, and I want to talk about what's wrong with the world, what happened according to the Judeo-Christian story, and we're going to also look at other stories, not quite as much as we have the last few weeks. I'm going to dig in a bit more to the Judeo-Christian story, but of course coming back to these other stories as well. So, three parts today. Let's begin now, in the first place, looking at the Judeo-Christian story by talking about this, the reality of evil. The reality of evil. In this first point, what I simply want to do is to show you how the Judeo-Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian story, offers what I'm going to say is a very satisfying answer, intellectually and emotionally, for the existence of evil in the world, especially in comparison to other stories. That's where I want to go in this first point. So, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 marks a critical turning point in the Bible's larger story. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is the main character. God's the one who speaks. God is the one who acts. Not only that, Genesis 1 and 2 just labors the point that everything in God's creation is good, as we turn to Genesis 3, though, something changes. There's a shift in the very first word. The very first word is now. Now something else is going to happen. We've had Genesis 1 and 2. Now something is going to shift. Suddenly God, who's been the main actor all along here, God, the main actor, exits the stage. We don't hear from him. We don't hear his voice for quite some time. And another character enters into the story. This character has a very different voice. Look with me at verse 1. Here's what we read. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I want to do something. This is, it's impossible to do. We're going to try to do it. Let's try to read the biblical story as if you've never read it before and never heard it before. This is your very first time you've read Genesis 1 and 2. Now you've got this shift into chapter 3. Something clearly is changing. Now something is happening. Now there is this serpent that's come into the story. If this was your very first time reading it, you would, of course, be jarred by the fact that a serpent is speaking. That's weird. But you would not be jarred by the fact that this serpent is described to be crafty. That word crafty doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing at all. It simply means that a person is prudent, competent, or shrewd. That doesn't have to be negative. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1 and verse 4, it says that the naive person, the simple-minded person, needs to grow in wisdom by becoming more shrewd, becoming more competent. Exact same word that we read here. And if this is your first time reading it, you're going along, you're saying, okay, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, everything, these creatures that God makes, they're all good, God's world is good, and and now you're reading about this creature who's even apparently greater than the other creatures because it's even more wise, more shrewd, more crafty than all of the other creatures. That's the emphasis here. You can see this. Now the serpent was more crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field. And it only gradually dawns on the reader that the serpent's great shrewdness has been turned for evil purposes. It's kind of this gradual shock that comes over you. You don't realize it until it's too late. A good creature has somehow become evil. This great gift of shrewdness that we read about here, craftiness, has somehow been twisted for evil purposes. It's like a great quote I uh, read, once read from Sherlock Holmes in one of the stories. He's describing a murderer, and he says this, It's a wicked world, and when a clever man turns his brains to crime, it is the worst of all. So if you get a really smart man who decides to move to crime... That's even worse than just any other type of crime. That's kind of what we see going on in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. We start seeing immediately, though, that there is more to this serpent than meets the eye, isn't there? Three quick things to show you. There's more going on here than meets the eye. First of all, the serpent speaks. That's odd. It's meant to strike you as odd. We're not told how communication works in the Garden of Eden but never does the Bible portray the Garden of Eden as kind of a fairyland where animals are talking to each other, something like that. never portrays that. So this is weird. What is going on here? Secondly, this is no ordinary serpent because it's a more a conscious moral being. It can think about what is right and what is wrong. The serpent tells lies and incites rebellion against God. Later on, in chapter three, God will hold the serpent morally accountable for what it's done. so Clearly something here more than meets the eye. And then third, this is no ordinary serpent because it lives for an extremely long time. In chapter chapter 3 and verse 16, God speaks about a battle way in the future between one of Eve's descendants, a male who will come from her line, and the serpent. So, Way in the future, there's going to be this battle. So the serpent must live for an extraordinarily long time. So in one sense, you're sitting there reading this, this will be your first time. You're like, I thought it was a serpent. That seems like, but then clearly it's not a serpent. What's happening here? There's something else going on. It seems that a dark supernatural power is somehow at work through the serpent, or is the serpent, or we're not even quite sure when we're reading this. Genesis, unfortunately, does not give us any other clues beyond that. But throughout the Bible God begins to kind of pull back the curtain to let you know who this serpent is. The New Testament asserts that the serpent is a supernatural being whom the Bible refers to as Lucifer, the devil, or Satan. So for instance, in John 8:44, Jesus says of the devil, referring to him, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him when he lies. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 19, we read these words that really make clear for us, or verse 9, sorry, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So you don't learn that until far later in the Bible's story about who this weird serpent creature is. And what exactly this creature like? But that's later on what the Bible says about who this serpent is. Now, we need to pause here for a moment. Because some of you are saying, okay, yeah, there's no problem, I'm with you. I've heard this lots of times before. But some of you are probably sitting here saying, okay, we've been part of this series. This is very interesting about the, the Judeo-Christian story in comparison to other stories. I've been with lots of it so far. But this is maybe just a little bit weird. Are you seriously saying, that we, as 21st century modern educated people, we should believe in the existence of the devil? Like, for real? So if that's you, let's just take a moment and reflect on this. We did this back in September uh, when we did that whole Armor of God series. Probably not a bad thing to kind of rethink through some of this again. So if you're sitting there saying, oh, this is just bizarre... I want to to ask you to consider just three things, and the third one's the most important. The first two just kind of are priming the pump. First of all, I'd ask you to do this. Consider in the first place, slide please, consider your beliefs about God. Consider your beliefs about God. Do you believe that God exists? Even here in liberal-minded, secular British Columbia, the vast majority of people, 85 to 90% of people, would say, when polled, I believe in God. If you ask them follow-up questions, what do you believe God is like? The question that will be followed up is God is love. God is loving. God is good. Okay. So if the vast majority of people, not just in B.C., but really around the world and throughout all of history, believe in the existence of a good and loving God, a supernatural being we call God, who is good and loving, why would it be hard then to think there might also be a supernatural being who is responsible for evil? There's a supernatural being called God. If God exists, it's not too difficult to think, okay, maybe there is another being, this being whom the Bible refers to as the devil. That would be one thing to just consider. I'm not saying that's the ultimate You know, argument for this, but just consider on that. But secondly, I think this one's really important. Consider your assumptions about the devil. (laughs) I think this is where most people are going to get tripped up because as soon as you ask someone, you know, why do you find it difficult to believe in the devil? What is the image you have in your mind when we say the devil? What's the image that you get into your mind? It's probably a guy. He's got some horns. He's got a a tail. uh, He's dressed in full body red spandex. I don't know how he doesn't sweat wearing all that. Uh, And he's carrying a pitchfork. I mean, that's just crazy, right? Or some Hollywood giant demon shape or something like that. That, That's what you have in your mind when you think about the devil. And And you're saying, I just can't believe in something like that. It's just so absurd. I'm here to tell you, and I'm happy to tell you, the Bible's not asking you to believe in that. Like, at all. Like, not even one tiny little part of anything that we just described there does the Bible ever say that's what the devil is like. Like, not even one part. It's all cultural imagination. So somehow you got to be able to say, I don't know how I got to believe all that kind of stuff, or that's the image. But all of it needs to go, like every single part of it. None of that is according to the Bible at all. So clear away some assumptions. But finally, and most importantly... I'd ask you to consider your experience of evil. Consider your experience of evil. For instance, how do you explain the actions of Luca Magnata? Maybe you don't know his name. This young man killed and dismembered a Chinese student by the name of Lin Jun, and then he mailed his limbs to elementary schools and to federal political parties. Horrific. How do you explain teenagers going into their schools and shooting their classmates? How do you explain the ovens of Auschwitz and the gulags of Stalin? What story do you have in your mind that gives an account for such horrific acts of evil? Some of the stories that people would say is, psychology can explain a lot of this. People grew up, perhaps, with abusive fathers. Uh, Maybe there's mental illness involved. Granted, I'll grant every part of it, but can it explain all of those actions? Others would say sociological factors. as things like propaganda. People buy into bad ideas. They support these terrible things. Maybe it's bad environments they were raised in. Sociology can explain these types of things. Again, I think the Bible's answer would be yes, that's absolutely true. But can sociology really explain the absolute depths of depravity in some of these acts? The Bible's answer would say all these things, biology, psychology, sociology, all these things might play a part into it all. It's all very complex. But the Bible's answer would say behind all of these forces lies a powerful supernatural force that influences the world for evil. Do you know who Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire is? A name I hope that maybe you've heard of at least. Uh, he was, he's a Canadian, he was the force commander for the United Nations peacekeeping effort in Rwanda. This is now getting to be a bit, a little bit older history, but just as we all need to learn our history on things like the Holocaust, let us never forget what happened in Rwanda in 1994. R- Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire was forced to stand by as Hutus, a tribal group within the country of Rwanda, slaughtered a million Tutsis in 100 days. A million people within their own country slaughtered their own people, mostly with machetes, neighbors against neighbors, classmates against classmates, a hundred days of pure hell on earth. I've been to the memorial in Kigali, <coughs> which is the capital city of Rwanda. I've been walking, walked through it. It's, it's kind of like if any of you have been to places like Auschwitz, same type of experience. There's a whole memorial set up there. It uh, tells you all kinds of the horrors. and They tell you some of the hero stories and things like that. I took a picture at this spot. You might not know what you're looking at there. I mean, it looks like a big, long, concrete slab. Kind of goes a bit off into the distance. Uh, Rwanda is all hills, in case you haven't been there. And so this is a hillside. And so this, this exact same thing is just up above, where you can see that fence up above. And then it goes down. I think there's probably four or five of these kind of things terraced into the hillside. So obviously, I'm, I'm facing to my left, taking a picture here. If I were to face to my right and take a picture, it would be the exact same thing. Probably four or five of these things uh, terraced down the hillside. Do you know what that is? What do you think it is? It's a mass grave. 250,000 people right under my feet. I remember walking through the memorial itself, seeing this great quote on the wall. I wish I would have taken a picture of it, because I, I can only remember it, uh, not precisely, but good enough to give it to you. As we were talking about, you know, we have this definition of what genocide is. Genocide, obviously, by definition, is something like the extermination of a people group because of their ethnicity, or maybe because of their religion, or something like that. This quote, this giant quote on the wall said, genocide is not the extermination of a people group because of their ethnicity, I was like, I thought that was the definition of genocide. Then it below it said, Genocide is the extermination of one person, then it is the exter thanks so much, Corey. Then it is the extermination of another person. Then it is the extermination and the brutal murder of a fourth third person, and it went on and on like this. You see the point it's trying to make? Sometimes we get lost in the numbers. Six million Jews in the Holocaust. One million uh, people in Rwanda. You get lost in these giant numbers. And what this quote was trying to break it down to, each an individual human life that has been snuffed out and taken away in a violent and unjust manner. What a great quote. I've been in the room filled with skulls, bones all around you. And then as you're leaving the memorial, there's a whole wing dedicated to children. Apparently, it's actually a pretty positive wing. I didn't know that. I put my eyes on the ground, and I walked right through it. Because I couldn't handle it. I didn't, I didn't know what the stories would be. Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire wrote a very famous book, I believe also a documentary, called Shake Hands with the Devil. In the final paragraph of the preface, he writes these words. After one of my many presentations following my return from Rwanda, a Canadian Forces Padre, a chaplain, asked me how, after all I had seen and experienced, I could believe in God. I answered that I know there is a God, because in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him. I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore, I know there is a God. You see what he's saying there? It's like the opposite argument for the existence of God. Usually people say, how could I ever believe in God when there's so much evil in the world? He, a man who has seen true hell on earth, true evil, flips the entire thing on its head and he says, this is not this. this evil is so evil, it's beyond anything that I can comprehend. There's got to be the existence of the devil and so there has to be the existence of God. And so I want to ask you that if you don't believe that, what story do you believe that makes sense of the evils of the world. Because here's what I know. I know that you, each of you, believe in evil. I know you believe that. You don't just believe the Holocaust was a mistake. You don't just believe it was an error. You don't believe that. You believe it was evil. I also know that you you believe that evil is not defined just by cultures or by own people's own personal preference and of course we know that because we're always saying that other cultures are wrong that what they did was wrong so what happened in Rwanda that was that was evil it's not just that there's cultural differences here we also know That people don't. With people walked around and said, "Well, hey, it's my truth. (laughs) I got my truth. You got your truth over there in Canada. You keep your truth. We're going to follow our truth." We just would not accept it. We would say there are things that were wrong in 3000 BC, and if we're still here in 3000 AD, they will be wrong. No matter what time it comes from, no matter how many people say it's right, it's just wrong. It's evil. So, I'm asking the question what story makes the best sense of the fact that we all believe evil exists, that it truly is evil, not just like a mistake, and it's not just something that goes against our own private personal beliefs? What is your explanation for what is wrong with the world? Is it robust enough? to be able to take into account horrific things like the Holocaust or the the genocide in Rwanda? Do you have categories beyond your own personal feelings and beliefs that can explain these things? The modern secular story would often say this is, unfortunately, it's tragic, but it is survival of the fittest. And even though we've evolved higher than the animals, we are still, that's part of our evolutionary history. And so, therefore, that's why humans do it. We should, we should try to supersede our evolutionary history, but that's just part of what it means to be human. It's often the answer that is given to try to give account for that. In some ways, it may work. I think it could maybe explain it in one sense, but in another sense, it doesn't at all. Lions kill, but human beings do not just kill. Human beings torture, rape, degrade, humiliate, (coughs) and brutalize. No animal does that. Now, you might say, well, it's because we've just risen above evolutionary. We've risen above the animals, and so we're, we're stronger. Again, does that really account for the absolute depths of depravity. That's what I'm trying to get at. How do you account for the just core wickedness, things that when you, when you hear they happened or that are just so wicked, can those really be accounted for? Is that just what it is at the end of the day? The Bible would say, stop being so simplistic in your definitions of evil and your accounts of them. Yes, it's sociology. Yes, it might be biology. It might be all these other factors that come into it. But there are things that happen in this world that are so evil. The Bible says behind all of that, there is a dark power, a supernatural force, a malicious being who pollutes the world with evil and seeks to bring destruction upon it. That is the beginning of the Bible's story on what I'm just calling the reality of evil. Now let's switch gears and let's move in the second heading to consider some questions. Let's turn in the second place to consider the mystery of evil. The mystery of evil. There's a lot of mystery that comes with Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, you're reading along about this good God who creates everything that exists, and then suddenly, evil just shows up into God's good world. So, at least two mysteries come up in our minds, and two questions that often people raise. The first would simply be, where did evil come from? If God created everything to be good, and God is good, and his world is good, where did evil come from? And then the second mystery, and this is the way my kids will often ha- have often put it to me, why didn't God just kill Satan? If you knew all this was going to happen, why didn't he just kill Satan? Or to put it another way, if God's so all-powerful, why did he allow evil to pollute his good creation? So let's tackle these two mysteries for a little bit and see if we can make some sense of them. Here's mystery number one, just to make it clear what we're talking about. Where did evil come from if God is good and everything he created was good? Genesis 3 does not answer this question. The rest of the Bible sheds a little bit of light on it, but even that light is faint. There are two chapters in the Old Testament uh, that give prophecies about two different kings. But the language of these kings seems to be greater than the kings themselves. It seems to go way beyond these kings. And so as a result, many Christians have seen in these a description, not just of the kings, but of a higher power of the devil and what, (coughs) what happened to him early on. This is debated, I'll tell you that up front. But assuming it's correct, I'll give you the view and then you can decide what to do with it. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, it speaks of a king. But if it's also speaking about Satan, it would say these words. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. And then... Well, so what this is basically then saying is that if, if it's speaking about the devil, if we're reading that correctly, then Lucifer was originally part of God's good creation and was one of the greatest in his creation until a day when wickedness was found in his heart. Isaiah 14 then would shed a little bit more light on this. What happened? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven... I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So again, if we're reading this correctly, if this is how Christians have often read it, Lucifer was not content with his role, even as great as it was, highest amongst the angels. He wanted to be like God himself and so rebelled. So, he makes war since he cannot make war on God. He makes war on God's good creation by seeking to turn human beings against their creator. So, if that view is correct, that gives you some of the background. But let's say, even if we're not reading that correctly, break it down to the most simple form. I think this is what we can say for sure. My little summary. The Bible's story does not tell us how an evil thought could arise in the heart of a good creature, but it does trace the origin of evil in our world to the serpent. So some of the origins might be a little bit mysterious. We're not entirely sure what they are, but what we can say is that evil in our world, like pollution, was not originally there. It was introduced at a certain point, and it was the serpent who originally brought evil into the world, So this is a quick reflection for you on that first mystery. So let's turn to the second mystery. Here it is. If God's all-powerful, why did he allow evil to pollute his good creation? I mean, here we must not say that the serpent's actions somehow took God by surprise as if God didn't know, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. The Bible everywhere says God is all-knowing. God would know this is going to happen. Not only that, we can't say that God couldn't stop it. Because everywhere the Bible says God is all-powerful. So if he's all-powerful and all-knowing, he knew this was going to happen, in my words of my, my kids, why didn't God just kill Satan? Well, the Bible can go even further on this. Listen to this. The Bible teaches that before God created the world, listen carefully, before God created the world, and therefore before the serpent ever did anything in Genesis chapter 3, God planned the death of His own Son. Hear that? Before, here's two scriptures to show you what I'm talking about. First Peter chapter uh, one, verse twenty. Jesus was chone, chosen before the creation of the world. Or Revelation chapter thirteen says these words: Jesus is the Lamb that was slain. When? 2,000 years ago? That's true. But actually, slain from the creation of the world. Follow me on this. If God planned to rescue sinners like you and I through the death of his son, and he did this before he created the world, then was he taken by surprise by the serpent's actions? No. Clearly, he saw it all. And so somehow, some mysterious way, he fits it all into his ginormous great plan for the universe he is going to create. Now we must quickly say and quickly follow up to say it's not God who plans evil and makes evil happen. Because always and ever in the Bible, it teaches some version of these words from John. That God is light and in him there is no darkness At all. God is never the author of evil. God is never the one who would plan evil and put it into his world. And yet in some mysterious way, God makes it so that even the existence of evil will fit within the plans that he is going to work out so that in many ways the serpent himself becomes nothing more than a pawn on God's chessboard. There is only one God. And the devil is just a created creature no matter how powerful he is. Ephesians 1 goes even further. It not only states that God plans all this before he creates the world, but that God works out everything in conformity with his will, which means even evil itself will be in the end to the praise of his glorious grace. So even though the devil attempts to ruin God's good world, he seeks to bring destruction upon it, he will in the end only be an instrument in God's hands in order to accomplish things more wonderful than we've ever imagined. It's like when Joseph said these famous words to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Or in the words of Ephesians chapter 1, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So if you want to work out this mystery of why God just didn't kill Satan, you have to do what I've used in other occasions when we've talked about topics very close to this. I I use the analogy of juggling. You have to juggle at least four truths. You cannot drop one of them. If you drop one of them, everything gets messed up. And God either becomes the author of evil, or God is incompetent, or something. you got to juggle four truths. So let me give them to you. As we just said, first, God who created all things has no evil in his being. You've got to start with that one. Secondly, evil came into the world through the serpent. Third, God was not surprised by or unable to stop evil from coming into the world. And fourth, in some mysterious way, God will use evil for his good purposes. And you've got to juggle all four of those. You can't just let one one of those balls drop. they got to all be up at once containing all those truths or else you get yourself into trouble one way or the other. So that's just wrestling a little bit. I know that's not much time. We don't have much time but to wrestle a little bit with some of the mysteries that come as soon as evil enters into the story. But let's now in the final place talk about an encouraging topic, shall we? In the final place, the defeat of evil. The defeat of evil. The Bible story may not uh, give us an answer, for all of our questions about where evil came from. Listen, I know people have lots of questions, and I do too. The origins of evil, exactly how that all happens, the Bible gives us some light, but not a lot. Ah, but listen very carefully. The Bible's crystal clear on what God will do about it. Not much information on what, how it all started, a whole lot of information on how it's going to end. Not much knowledge on the origins, a whole lot on the completion of the story. As soon as evil pollutes the world, God immediately, in Genesis chapter 3, promises to renew his creation that's been polluted by evil, to clean it all up. God promises to defeat and to destroy evil when he pronounces the curse on the serpent. Here's what he says later on in Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, mark that, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To eat dust is an image of defeat. It's it's the person who loses in a battle who has to lick the dust off the boots of the victor. So how will God defeat evil? According to this, this is the very beginnings of the story. It's through one of Eve's male offspring. A boy, a man is going to be born sometime down the line of Eve somewhere. In other words, a human male is going to be born. That human male is going to grow up to do battle with the serpent himself. And in this battle, they're both going to be deeply wounded and death is going to come. But the serpent's head is going to be crushed. Jesus Christ is that long promised human male. The long-promised human male who defeated Satan at the cross when he took away our sins. He defeated the devil in conquering death itself. Here's how Colossians puts it perfectly for us today. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the evil powers, that's a little idiom to describe the evil spiritual powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Oh, that's good language. Made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. How does he do this? Because what is it that the evil powers have on us? It's our sins. They lead us, deceive us into sin. They deceived Eve into sinning, Adam, they deceive us. The whole world is under deception. We, we fall away from our creator. We sin against our creator. So we're deceived. And then we also must pay the just penalty for our sins, for the things that we have done. And so they can accuse us. You're guilty. You're guilty. And they're right. But God in Christ took the record of your sins and he nailed them to the cross so that he takes away, he cancels the debt that you and I owe. So that your sins can be forgiven in Christ. So you see then how the powers are defeated. They got nothing left. It's like a prosecuting attorney wants to say, objection your honor, I'd like to bring another prosecution. And the judge just says, overruled. There's nothing on the books. There is. I, look, I just looked at the books. There is no more accusations. Every single one of these crimes have been paid in full. There is no more accusations that could be made. Overruled, you're disbarred, get out of the courtroom. That's the language here. There's no more case to be made, and then, of course, in his resurrection, Jesus also defeats not just the evil powers, but of death itself. So all our greatest enemies are defeated for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. This language of disarmed public spectacle triumph—it all recalls. If you lived in the first century, you know exactly where it was recalled. You would have immediately thought of a Roman parade. A parade that took place after a conquering general of Rome had gone and conquered some foreign country, come back, and there was a giant parade for this general as he went to get his reward from Caesar. This is the language from those parades. Let me give you one instance of it. There was a Roman general named Amelius Paulus, and he returned from capturing Macedonia. And When he did that, there was a three-day triumphal parade in his honor. And so all the treasures of the enemy uh, were, were paraded down through the streets of Rome. Everyone's cheering, hey, yeah, we won. And then on the third day, the defeated armies all came. All these soldiers came stripped and in chains, showing a public spectacle. You've been utterly defeated. And then at the very end of all of that came the king of Macedonia himself, stripped of his armor, Stripped of his crown, stripped of his chariot, walking in chains through, made a public spectacle before all those in Rome that General Amelius had conquered him and he had lost. And then finally, at the very end of the parade came the victorious general himself. Here's a description of it from an ancient source. He was seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand, laurel branch being the sign of victory. All the army, in like manner, with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom of songs of triumph and the praise of General Emilius's deeds. That's the imagery behind that quote that we just read. The Bible does not give much about the origins of evil. It gives enough for us to understand it, but it tells you everything how it's going to end. And how it's going to end, according to the Bible, is through his death and his resurrection, Jesus defeated and conquered all evil, all sin, and all death. And so maybe one day in heaven, there will be some gigantic parade parading through the streets of glory will be the defeated evil powers, stripped of all their strength, shackled in chains, the devil himself being paraded through the streets, the, the, finally the conquered one, the one who's been conquered, the one who's been defeated, the one who's behind so much of all the horrific stories of history from Rwanda to the Holocaust to events today, stripped, made a public spectacle And then finally, at the end of that line, will come the victorious general, Jesus Christ himself, dressed in robes of purple, wearing the crown, and all the streets of heaven will be packed with all of his people, singing praise to him who through his death on the cross disarmed the principalities and the powers, that he through his death on the cross defeated him and took away our sin, that through his resurrection... He defeated death, sin, and the evil one. And they, according to the scriptures, will go away to the lake of burning sulfur forever and ever. And all who belong to Christ will walk into an eternity of glory. This is where the Christian story offers such great hope to the world and to our lives. Not only does the Christian story provide us with categories to think through the worst possible atrocities in this world, gives us categories to think it through intellectually, it also emotionally helps us to understand there's hope for this world. It's not just going to keep going on like this forever, no matter what happens with Ukraine and Russia, even if that were, God forbid, turn into World War III. There's still hope for this world, though things even get darker, that Christ has triumphed over evil and that all who join him will one day be ushered into a world that will have no more of this pollution of evil within it. For God will renew this earth, creating it to be like a new earth. And heaven, God's space, will come down to merge with our space, earth. And the scriptures say God will dwell with his people forever. It is for this reason that we have hope in this world For although God's purposes in allowing evil and all the things that happen are largely mysterious to us, we can still sing in the words of that old 500-year-old hymn. And though this world with devils filled should should threaten to undo us, and we feel that at times, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. We don't care about him. His rage we can endure. How do we endure it? For lo, his doom is sure. Just one little word will fell him. Let's pray. Jesus, before such evil, before such power, we have no strength in ourselves. We don't have the strength to stop wars and we don't even have the strength often to stop the wars in our own hearts, our hearts which also can reveal so much wickedness. And so we look outside ourselves, we look to you, the only one who could really save us. For there can be no salvation in any other philosopher or great teacher. We need someone who can fully rescue us from death itself, someone who can forgive our sins Who can somehow restore this world and make it right. And Jesus, we say that you and you alone can do this. Our hope is built, Jesus, on nothing less than your blood and your righteousness. So we say, You are the Lord. You are the reigning King. You alone have done this for us, and we long for the day when you will return. In this meantime, Father, we pray that you would be that fortress for us. We hide ourselves in you. You are the only one who can protect us and lead us. Help us to live for your kingdom, despite whatever evils may come into this world or into our lives. We ask it in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.